So we're here today for another edition of Are We There Yet? Women, Position, and Power. And today it's my great pleasure to be here with Faye Whiteman, President and CEO of the Vancouver Foundation. Hi, Faye. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Erica. Thanks so much for agreeing to participate. I'm anxiously looking forward to the interview, and I know everyone's going to really get a lot out of it. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, let's start off by um, having you tell us a little bit about... Um, your journey and how you got to be president and CEO of the Vancouver Foundation. Okay. Well, I actually started uh, my career as a, as a nurse and worked in the open heart unit for a number of years in my 20s. And um, when I was uh, 30 years old, my, my uh, physician husband died. I had a couple little kids, and so I decided that I didn't really necessarily want to continue with nursing and doing shift work. I worked in the open heart unit because of having the, the small children, so I decided to go back and get my degree. I was a nurse through the hospital program at that time and decided to get my career or my degree in nursing so that then I could teach nursing and it would be regular days and didn't have to work weekends and evenings. When I was there, I started to do some volunteer work with the Red Cross and lo and behold, when I finished my degree, the two years, um, they offered me a position as director of their health and community services for BC Yukon. So I decided, well, gosh, I would try that. It involved um, running a number of outpost hospitals and then a number of different programs that the Red Cross was associated with, like Red Cross or um, First Aid and Loan Service Program, that equipment loan service. So I did that for four years, really enjoyed the opportunity to work for the Red Cross, have a great deal of respect for the work that they do. In the last year that I was there... um, was presented with an opportunity to start a new program, a child abuse prevention program, that the government at that time had decided to stop funding. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, really incredible program that tried to get ahead of the abuse by going in and talking to the next generation of parents before they became parents. So it was a program that went into high schools. And I I just really believed in the program very strongly. And so the Red Cross said, yes, you can put it under the banner of Red Cross, but there's no national money to run it. And normally that's what happens with any of the programs. So they said, you can do it if you can raise the money for it. So never having raised money in my life, I thought, (laughs) well, how hard can that be? And uh, (laughs) started to do it. And, And in fact, it actually was relevant relatively easy to do. I think when you're passionate about something and you care about it, it's easy then to pass that on to someone else. So we got support for it. So as a result of, I think, probably doing that, um, I was approached by the United Way to come and be their campaign director. And to tell you the truth, you know, going from being a nurse to the Red Cross made sense. I was still working with healthcare, But going from the Red Cross to United Way to be a fundraiser was a bit of a shift. And I really had never thought of a career as a fundraiser um, didn't even really know that fundraisers got paid for doing the work, but decided, well, you know what the heck, might be interesting, so uh, took the job and did that uh, for four years. I remember saying to them, I'm really, I know nothing about fundraising, like, why would you want me? And they said, well, we've been watching you and you've got good management skills, so mm-hmm. you bring your management skills, which is what they were looking for at the time, we'll teach you about fundraising. So I did that for four years, learned a, a lot, a huge amount, um, had the benefit of some really a, a good male uh, mentor at that time, and then was approached by Children's Hospital to come and uh, run their development and public relations and volunteer services. And I really jumped at that because it felt like I was going back to healthcare, something mm-hmm. I really, really loved, loved children. So to go to work at Children's Hospital was a dream come true. And did that for 14 years. Um, felt that, you know, it was my whole life was that job. Uh, everything that I did 
centered around that, that job. So decided it was time for a change. I was in my 50s, and if I was going to make the change, I should do it then. So I went to Victoria for two years to the University of Victoria. Oh. Was vice president of external relations there. Found it very difficult living in Victoria. As beautiful as it is, found it very isolating, and I was very lonely. So when I was recruited for this job, um, really loved the idea of coming back home and working in a place where it wasn't just about raising money anymore. It was about managing a team and about giving money back into the community. So it seemed like a perfect way to end my career. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, and maybe just because um, I'm curious. So as president and CEO of the Vancouver Foundation, you said you're managing a team. And mm-hmm. so how many? Uh, so we have uh, 48 staff, okay. a board of 15, you know, a few hundred volunteers. Um, we managed $750 million, okay. and we put grants back out into the community around the province, about 50 to $60 million a year. Um, so next to the provincial government, we're probably the largest um, funder of, of uh, organizations, charities in, in the province. So. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. exciting. Okay. Now, um, the next question is related to the issue of gender. And, you know, your perception on has you being a woman affected your career progression? Has it hindered? Has it helped? Or how has it affected yeah. it? I think it's it's a mix. I think there have been times when it's been a benefit. There's been times when it's been more of a challenge being a woman. Um, I think of... Um, when I when I went to, for instance, when I went to the University of Victoria, I remember being interviewed. They had a huge panel of people that they were that they brought in for every interview, every potential group that that worked at the university. And I remember one of the questions was, they said, "Well, how do you feel as being the first woman on the executive team?" It's all it was all men executives, and vice presidents, and that. Um, how do you feel about being the first woman on the team and sort of representing women? Um, you know, there on the executive of the university. And I, mean, I remember my response was, well, I sincerely hope that they are not hiring me because of a woman. I, because I'm a woman, I hope that they're hiring me because I'm the best person to do the job. So I don't see myself representing women. I see myself as doing a great job. The fact that I'm a woman brings certain characteristics to the job, but I'm not representing women by taking this job. So I think, on the other hand, I think that probably that I mean, they never said that was a factor, but there's no doubt that they may have been looking for a woman to provide, I mean, not a balance, but certainly some diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the first time a woman has been in this position. Mm -hmm. It's tended to be, you know, a fairly male-dominated organization, both on the board and, uh, and with the leadership as well. So I think, again, the fact that I was a woman, maybe there it was a benefit. On the other hand, I think that... um, at times, it's that I've, as a woman, I probably had to, you know, show different kinds of strengths in order to be considered for some positions. So I'd like to hear a little more about that. <laughs> so when you say show different strengths, well, like, I think what that they they wanted uh, in some of the jobs what they were looking for is can I make sound decisions that are not. You know, the bias is women make decisions based on emotion. So am I objective in my business decisions? Do I know how to look at financial statements? Do I have the characteristics that often uh, employers, and particularly if they're a different generation of men that are hiring, think that women are not necessarily capable of? And so, you know, in the interviews, I would have uh, stressed way less of the um, any emotion part of of uh, leadership. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that would be a good takeaway for women that yeah. are considering particularly applying for senior positions in, you know, less traditional where You really have to know your audience and what is it that they're looking for and looking at the history of that organization and what have they typically done and, you know, what are they looking for. And, and it may, I remember some of the questions that I asked going in for interviews is what are you looking for? You know, are you looking for a change? Are you looking for a different kind of leader? Mm-hmm. Are you looking for someone to come in and use different skills that often women tend to have more than men? I mean, I hate to generalize that way, but sometimes they do that way. Uh, and so to really get clear, what are they looking for, so that you know if you can be yourself. Okay. Right. And I would say that's about really, I would frame that as a stepping into your power and being proactive. Absolutely. So that you're prepared for the interview. Yeah. So asking those kinds of questions, yep. I think, would so be a great me, strategy. So for me, the interview, especially the last one, is this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend to be anybody but who I am. If this is what you're looking for, it's a good fit. If it's not, it's probably not a good fit. So right. being clear about who you are and where your strength comes from and what your power is and, and to see whether or not it's a good fit. Okay. Um, now the next question is focused on this issue of power because this whole topic of women in power, which is sort of the topic of yeah. this sub-series, yeah. is one that I focus um, on a lot in my um, work. And uh, one of the quotes that came up when I uh, was first um, researching for a keynote was uh, it was the first quote when I Googled women in power um, uh, it came up, powerful women are either sexually voracious rulers like Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I, or treacherous bitches like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. Now, you are a woman in a position of power, so I'm really interested, and I know our readers and listeners will be, in um, your thoughts on the reality of being a woman in a position of power, given the stereotypes and biases that are out there, and you mentioned one of them already. And what tips might you have for young women that are contemplating working their way up the corporate power hierarchy relative to this issue of power? Well, it's interesting because when you, when you give those two examples... You know, my mind immediately goes to, so which of those categories would I want to be classified in? <laughs> <laughs> and I think, gosh, I'm not sure either. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, I start thinking, um, you know, would we, would we tend to classify men that way as well? Would we say that, I don't even know what the counterpart would be for sexually voracious uh, or, or uh, treacherous and that. Um, I think it's a shame that, that peop- women are, are labeled. Uh, with those, you're either or. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, that too often women in leadership positions, when they do something, are are immediately suspect of being, oh, they've used their sexuality or they've used their femininity, and and um, and yet if a man does some of the same things that a woman might do in leadership, there's no obvious correlation like, oh, he's, he's using his sex. So I, you know, I, I just think it's a shame that, that those characteristics are, are labeled. On the other hand, I know it's a reality. Mm-hmm. I know that um, I've often, it's been often being told to me that, uh, you know, you're very intimidating. And I just think, Wow, I wonder if they say that to men, you know, or is it because I'm a woman that somehow I'm seemed intimidating? And yet, really, the core of who I am is anything but intimidating. I'm probably one of the softest, you know, easygoing, um, gentlest, caring individuals that I know, quite frankly. But my job requires me sometimes to make decisions that are are tough, and I have a position of power. Mm-hmm. But it's my job. It's mm-hmm. not who I am. And I think that often what ends up happening is that 
um, women are given, you know, these categorizations or are called these things that are more of a personal nature mm-hmm. than they are relative to their, to their, to their job, and it's just it's it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. You know, if if I'm if I am a bitch in quotation marks, um, it may or may not have nothing to do with the job that I've got. If I'm a miserable person, then mm-hmm. I'm a miserable person. But somehow. If you're in a position of power and you do things that are seen as being unseemly, you're given almost a, a behavioral or a personality kind of label that mm-hmm. goes along with it. And it's just, I think it's, it comes from people that just don't know how to deal with, with women in power. Right. Yeah. Any hints as to how we can start to address <laughs> this? Uh, start teaching your sons and uh, nephews and, and uh, that next generation of men about uh, all people are equal. Right. You know, when women can, there are women leaders and there are male leaders, and there are strong women and there are weak women, and there are strong men and weak men. And, and, and to stop labeling behavior as having something to do with your gender. Yeah, and I think um, I've been actually hearing this from a number of different people that the real importance of having those conversations with men and particularly young men just because of a lot of the things that are out there that are giving people, you know, particularly young men, the impression that the deck is stacked against them. Yes. And it's just really perpetuating a lot of, you know, stereotypes and encouraging prejudice and discrimination when, in fact, it's all based on fallacious information. That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm at a stage now in my career and, and in, in life that, I mean, I'll call people when I hear, call people on it, mm-hmm. but I think you have to feel like you're willing to take the risk of doing that, and for some women who are just climbing the career ladder, they may not necessarily mm-hmm. you know, want, want to do that. I mean, I remember a time when I was at Children's Hospital and, and we were interviewing a potential candidate to be on the board, and I was interviewing that candidate with my board chair, who was an older gentleman. And this man that we were meeting with, uh, we were talking about different things and different interests. And uh, in the middle of the interview, which was entirely inappropriate, the man said to me, well, what about you? What's your situation? Are you married? And I mean, we're interviewing him for a board position. Mm-hmm. So I kind of looked at him and I said, I'm not sure what that has to do with you joining the board. And he said, well, I'm just interested to know if you're married or not. And the board chair at that time just said, oh, yeah, didn't we tell you? That's thrown in with the package. You know, she comes with the package of being on the board. So I could have at that point just turned to him and said, oh, I'm so nailing you for harassment, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Or I could have said, you know, I could have said, blank, that that is so incredibly inappropriate. Because it was. Mm -hmm. Inappropriate, wrong, embarrassing, whatever. But I, you know, you you know how you have those Mm -hmm. quick thought bubbles in your head? And I thought, the man is 75 years old. He is not going to change. Um, It doesn't matter. Whatever I say right now is going to embarrass him, Mm -hmm. is going to embarrass this other gentleman, and it's just going to make me look like a quote bitch, right? And so let it go, um, let it go. And so I think that at times you have to make those kinds of decisions. That there are times when you say, "I need to correct this," and this is wrong, and people are saying the wrong things. In my mind, and there's other times when you say, "This is not something that I'm going to be able to battle against." Mm-hmm. Other yeah. times, I think absolutely, I've, I've called people on it and said, "That's really not appropriate." Mm-hmm. 
you know, you wouldn't call it. If, if I was a man, you wouldn't be saying that about me. So, no. you know, just back off. That's quite an interesting story, yeah. I have to tell you, a bit shocking. So when you think about young women that are contemplating working their way up the corporate power hierarchy, so you've, you've talked about being strategic in terms of when you raise issues, you've talked about the importance of being aware of the fact that this stuff is probably going to come at you. Is there anything else you would say to them? I would just say really be aware of the situation that you're in and where it's appropriate, not appropriate to, you know, to follow up mm-hmm. with appropriate action. And, and as much as people might say, well, at all times you should correct the misperception, at times you need to just understand that it's not necessarily in your best interest to do that. Right. Or how you do it, you can you know, do it later in the day or later after the meeting right. occurred or whatever right. and correct it. That embarrassing people yeah. in front of other people will often not be the way to address it. Absolutely. And in fact, all you're going to do is get that person entrenched in their behavior and retort back. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, and certainly wouldn't go well for you in no, terms of no. your reputation. Yeah. And, I mean, I think the reality is is that when people do that, when they're using um, labels to define your behavior, and especially if they do it publicly, um, in the end, they look like the, they, you know, they look foolish doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's really interesting, though, to me to think that, first of all, the fact that that question would be asked. Yes. Um, I can tell you he didn't make it onto the board. <laughs> I thought, yeah, not a chance. <laughs> and 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 it's a, it is a very sort of I would say a very subtle sort of undermining of you yep. as a woman in a position exactly. of power because it's like, well, okay, you're in a position of power, but are you married? Yes, and that's really what matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of women in my position that are uh, CEOs of not for profits, and and so often, certainly in the past, maybe a little less now. Um, a lot of the boards have been male-dominated. Right. And so I think that we've had to work very hard to um, not fall into the female role of the CEO in terms of, you know, catering to them and to their needs and to going that extra step and, and establishing yourself as a professional individual. Yeah. You know, so I know just even little things like, no, I'm not the one that gets up and gets the coffee. Right. You know, so I'll make it. And it's not that I'm big on that. Right. Um, but it is sometimes, I think, women, that, especially that work in the social service industry, we tend to be those kinds of giving, compassionate, mm-hmm. caring women, yeah. and we um, often mother or do those kinds mm-hmm. of things in our jobs And in order to have the, the gain the respect and to gain the, the credibility that you need in order to do these jobs. Sometimes you have to push that away and, yeah. and act a little more, less using natural feminine traits, mm-hmm. female traits. Yeah, so being strategic yeah. about how you... And, and understanding yeah. your own relationship, I guess, to gender and power. Exactly. And then being strategic in terms yeah. of the decisions you make relative yeah. to how you demostrate both yeah. power and because gender. Because the reality is, is I know that I've also used being a female to my advantage in, in when I've been a CEO. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have. You use whatever kind of skills and traits you have. And mm-hmm. so there are times when being a female has definitely been... An advantage. Yeah. You know, I can be a little more warm and compassionate and, right. um, you know, I can touch somebody's shoulders, touch somebody's arm and, and, uh, and you know, feel okay about that because right. that's the kind of person that I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I know many men would be very hesitant to touch anybody. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know. And sometimes there's no doubt that I have been more emotional mm-hmm. about things than... You know, I've just let that side of me come out, yeah. fully recognizing that it may be advantageous to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I think also broadening the sort of the lexicon of what really it is to be a person yes. in a position of power, and it yes. doesn't have to look the traditional paternalistic male way. That's right. And I don't have to be non-caring just right. because I'm a CEO. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily translate to a better no. CEO. No. Yeah. Okay, so another um, interesting thing that I've been uh, asking women in these interviews is uh, about the relationship between making it to the C-suite and having children, because the research is clear that if you don't have children, it's a lot easier to get to the C-suite, and that women with children, there's a direct sort of less of a correlation to making it. So um, I wonder how um, you feel about that reality, what your experience has been around the issue, and if you have any thoughts about how to address that issue so that that playing field could be equalized or if you think that would be even possible. I, I do agree with you. I think that there is more demands on women when they have children. I don't know to what extent that I would say it's career limiting because you may still decide to put 90% of your effort into your career um, and only 10% into your kids. So I wouldn't say necessarily that having children is career limiting. I think that having children forces you to make some life decisions mm -hmm. about which is going to be more important because it's never 50-50. Like right. It just isn't. So are you going to uh, sacrifice, in a way, some of your uh, home and child-raising responsibilities in favor of your career? Or is it going to be vice, you know, vice versa? So I think that when you are making those decisions, you really need to understand that the whole fallacy that women can have it all is, it, or the whole premise that women yeah. can have it all is in fact not true. Right. That one way or another, you make sacrifices, and sometimes I think the sacrifices that you make, it's not you that's even making the sacrifices; it's your children that mm. are making the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's. Uh, it is, but I don't think that it is as much as what people say it is in terms of it being career limiting. I think you just decide that you're going, you are you may have a different kind of life. Maybe you're going to have a nanny or maybe you're going to have to, you know, recognize that you're not going to be every, every day at home taking care of your children and raising your children. You have to put other things in motion. So. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have children when you told yes. us your story and you also, so you, and, and that you had made a deliberate decision to change careers so that you'd because yes. of a scheduling issue. What was interesting, though, I think in hindsight, when I looked at that, I think I made the right decision at that time when I was 30, thinking, well, if I worked days and not nights and weekends, then I could be a better mom and mm -hmm. look after my kids, especially being a single mom. Um, in hindsight, because of you know a fairly quick rise to the top to running organizations, I ended up probably having less time <laughs> than if I uh, had stayed in nursing. Um, I worked long hours, mm -hmm. and particularly the jobs that I have in the not-for-profit sector, You, there's a lot of evening events, mm -hmm. there's weekend events. Um, I, looking back at it now, uh, I have no doubt that my family life and my children suffered as, the, as a result of how much I worked and put into my job. I think that I could have definitely been a better parent okay. if I wasn't, hadn't been so stressed from working, mm -hmm. hadn't worked the number of hours that I worked. Um, yeah, and definitely also, it's tough. 
being a single parent, as I'm a single parent as well, so yep. I certainly understand that reality. Yeah. And how sort of does that play into the mix? Cause, so tough. Yeah. So tough because you come home and you don't even have anybody, another adult to sort of just bounce your day off of, and you immediately go from, you know, being this the CEO and running something to being at home and having to get dinner and having the homework and the kids and and you don't have anybody to share that load and that's mm-hmm. really really hard. I think that's so difficult. Yeah, so I have so much respect for those individuals. But I also have a lot of respect just even for women that are working in these kinds of positions Mm -hmm. and going home because as much as I've been able to see a lot of wonderful men share responsibility for home (laughs) homemaking and raising kids, I've yet to actually ever see an equal balance. And in most cases, I think it's still the woman that carries the lion's share. I look at both my daughters who have wonderful, wonderful men in their lives and and they're great dads, and I'm so glad that you know they're with them. But there's no doubt that my daughters carry the bulk of the of the work. They both work, mm-hmm. and they come home, and they do yeah. more than their share yeah. of it. And and the men are wonderful, but the women do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, and that's the reality. The research yeah. has borne this out over and over yeah. again. That nothing has really changed. I mean, women since you know close to eighty percent are still doing yeah. most of the sort of lion's yeah. share of those responsibilities. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I I think I've learned through this that if I had to go back and do it again, I would do it differently. Is I like many women of my generation thought that it was important to be home when my kids were really young. Okay. And looking back on it, I think. Uh, that was not as important as what I thought it was. That as long as they've got, like I look at my daughter who's got a wonderful nanny who just loves her kids. And, um, you know, she's, she's great and she's fantastic. And, and I think it's more important to be home um, when the kids get to be 13 and on. And so that you're home after school and you're hearing right away how their day went. You're the because by the time you get home at five or six o'clock, they're not they don't want to talk about it. They've mm-hmm. already been home for a couple hours. And I think the fact that they come home and it's their parent there is really important. Mm-hmm. If I did it again, I would have somehow adjusted it so that I wouldn't have felt guilty about leaving when they were little, mm-hmm. and I would have been home a lot more when they were teenagers, a lot more. Okay, and that's I think you know I have a sixteen year old, and that's my experience as well. Yeah. Is, um, now it seems I thought the same thing, yep. but uh, yeah, I think in the teenage years they, I mean, they need you all the time, but they definitely yes. need you in a different yes. way. And the kinds of issues that yeah. come up are ones you want to be on top yes. of. Absolutely, yeah. I and to know agree. who they're hanging out with after yeah. school, yeah, and what they're talking sure. about, what they're thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. So, um, do you think that it is possible that this ever, you know, can be equalized, or do you just think this is a reality that women? I think it's a a reality and that women just have to realize it and as much as possible put in the resources around them to help them deal with it. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, you know, talking with other women, how do you do this, sharing in different ways, uh, you know, talking to your employer about the hours of work that you've got, recognizing, um, you know, that you have to, you're, you're going to feel a lot less guilty if you can make sure that you're there on there when they're doing a play or track day or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to accommodate, I think you need to accommodate the fact that you've got two full-time jobs. Right. And uh, I know for our, in our organization, we have 18 what we call SPS days, which are special purpose days. So if it means that you have to take a day off to go and watch your, you know, be there for your kid's school or something. So, 
So that's one of the flexible practices that yes. is, you know, to support parents. Yeah. And just because you're in a place that doesn't have it doesn't mean that you can't lobby to make it happen. Right. Because when, you know, one of the questions I think you were going to ask is, what advice would I give to, you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies? And it's like, be more accommodating to working women. Mm-hmm. Working parents either way, but there tends to be more yeah. working women that have the responsibility for families. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we would hope that they would do that. But the other way is, as you said, I think for women... To yeah. speak up about it again. Right. To me, that's stepping into yeah. your power and speaking up about it yeah. in a way. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, it really is a good business decision. Yeah. yeah. Because if you've got somebody at work who can't focus because they've got their mind on something else, then really, how productive are they going to exactly. be? Exactly. And the other advice that I would give is, um, you know, it's not the end of the world if you take six or seven years out of your career mm-hmm. in order to be at home raising your family. Use that time to upgrade your education or to take some courses. Don't make it. Oh, I'm I'm out of the workforce, and so I'm going to lose. I'm going to get behind. Take some things that you can do when your kids are working or are at school Mm -hmm. in order to continue to promote your career. And that's interesting because I think a lot of people would go, how could you do, you know, but so from your perspective, and we heard that actually uh, when we interviewed, when I interviewed Donna Wilson, she did take some time off and she said, no, it didn't, no, didn't. No. You know, maybe change the route a bit, but it didn't actually affect her no. career progression. She still got where she wanted I to agree. go. And she doesn't regret that decision yeah. at all. So. And I think a lot of employers, I mean, when I hire people and they say, I took three or four years off or six years off to raise mm-hmm. my children, it's like, oh, okay, so now you're back. And mm-hmm. in fact, if anything, it's like, okay, great, I like your values. And right. so now you're back, and now you've reached a stage where you're ready to commit. Right. Um, so I don't think it hurts. Okay, great. So I think that's really helpful for young, you know, younger women, women at an earlier stage to yeah. be aware of the fact that this is a choice. Yes. And you can make that choice and it won't hamper your career. Okay, so the next question focuses on the issues of disrespect like harassment and bullying, which I spend a lot of time dealing with in my work. And unfortunately, the statistics around these behaviors, particularly bullying, uh, but in both cases, they're they're overwhelmingly targeted in both kinds of complaints. Women are on the receiving end of the majority of both of those complaints. Um, but when it comes to bullying, the stats are that it's often women that are bullying other women. And, um, you know, my take on it, and I talk a lot and write a lot about this, relates back to the dynamic of power and, uh, you know, how the relationship that we as women have. Um, and I wondered how, what your experience has been with these kind of issues in terms of, you know, that, and what ideas you might have about how to shift this reality for women at work. Well, it's interesting that you were saying the research shows that it's often women uh, bullying other women. My belief is bullies are bullies. And if you're a bully... You're, whether you're bullying other women or bullying other men, you're a bully. Mm-hmm. And maybe the statistics show that there's more men bullying women because there's typically more men in positions of power than there are women. So maybe that's what it is. I, I'm not sure because I've, I've certainly seen bullies in work, and, but I think, as I say, that they're just not nice people and they're bullies and a and, uh, little less... You know, it's not about the gender. That being said, so I don't think you can change whether or not a man or a woman is is, is a bully. If you're a bully, you're a bully. I think what needs to happen is that we need to help people, and if your research is true, it's more women, we need to help people say, that's not acceptable Mm -hmm. behavior, and to be able to go back to those bullies. Because you may not be able to change the bullies, Mm -hmm. but you can It's like what I often say is, I can't change what happens to me, but I can change how I respond to it. Absolutely. So I think that we need to have a lot more courses, and um, parents need to help their kids know how to respond to bullies. Mm -hmm. And and I think that... um, 
you know, perhaps women are less able to do that because maybe they're in a, uh, I don't mean subservient, but a, a reporting to relationship. Mm-hmm. But I really strongly believe that it is up to us to educate our, our children about how to stop the bullying mm-hmm. by responding to it. So I can give you one example. I remember when I was at Children's Hospital and uh, this male physician was talking to me and he was quite angry. Now, often it is men that are physicians as well, mm-hmm. and then you put on top of it the fact that they are a specialist. Yeah. They often come from a position of power. Absolutely. People look up to them and whatever. I remember him literally being in front of me and yelling at something. Not at me with what I had done, but yelling at a situation, but the anger was coming at me. And I remember just looking at him and saying, okay, you need to understand, I'm going to walk away from you right now because you're not going to talk to me yelling. I'm not going to respond to you when you're yelling. And I don't really care who you are. I don't talk to people that yell at me. So when you, if you want to talk to me, I really would be happy to talk to you about this but I'm not going to stand here and have you yell at me and sort of walked away. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, we have to do more of that. We have to say, no, this is not acceptable that you do this, and to walk away. Absolutely. I mean, one of the big things that I talk about is um, the importance of, I said it a couple of times, stepping into our power, but also needing power-based behavior with power. So just the way you framed that was very sort of, I won't, I, you know, that's yes. what I call power-based language. Yes. But in those kinds of situations, I think we want to use power-based language Absolutely. because, and for some of us, it's hard if we're not used to. Yes. But again, it's about being strategic and deliberate and realizing yeah. that if that's what I'm being faced with, I need to up my power game right. and I need to meet it. And I think also the, the subtext there is we all of us really need to be clear about our boundaries. That's right. And what yes. we're prepared to take and whether or not we're going to be our own best advocate. Yeah. And I don't care who that person is. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to stand in front yeah. of me and yell at me. Like, yeah. no, I'm sorry. Just not yeah. going to not going to do that. And it's interesting because I obviously taught that to my children. So <laughs> just to show you, I'm so far from not being perfect. I remember having an argument with my daughter uh, when she was a teenager and I was yelling. Mm-hmm. Um, embarrassing to admit that I was yelling at her. And she just looked at me, she said, Mom, I actually can't deal with yelling, so I'm going to go in my room, and I'll talk to you about this later. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I hate it when the kids teach you the lesson. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know that one. She said the same thing, Mm -hmm. I I can't deal with yelling, Mom, so, you know, don't don't yell at me. And I said, well, I'm yelling because you're not listening. She said, well, I'm really not listening when you're yelling. Exactly, and that's our justification. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I know I was, one of my big things was to raise my daughter to be assertive and responsive and step into her power, and I sort of, I'm... certainly seeing the results now because (laughs) she gives me feedback on a regular basis and particularly the teenage years sometimes you really have to sort of grin and bear it you know I was uh I in my first marriage I was in an abusive marriage for um three of the seven years that I was married before he died and uh I never dealt with that because I was embarrassed we lived in a beautiful home in Shaughnessy Mm -hmm. and um, I never wanted to tell anyone that I was being hit and abused. And, and um, so for me, I had to go through a learning experience that was not at all obviously pleasant uh, in order to get to a point where I could say, no, I'm actually never going to let someone do that to me. And uh, so I was able to take that learning mm-hmm. um, 
and pass it on to my kids that it doesn't matter who that person is. Uh, they are not allowed to hit you, and they're not allowed to actually, you know, yell at you and do all this stuff. Like, you just, you walk away. You do not have to stay there and take that. No. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a, yeah, fairly staggering story. But thank you for sharing that. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, my perspective on these kinds of things is, the only, you know, I think bad things happen to many, many of yes. us, and really it's just what can we learn and how do we use this in a way that we can, you know, yeah. apply it to our lives because yeah. otherwise those things can just diminish and destroy us yeah. and define us. And I, I think agree. it is really, we, we blame ourselves often when things happen to us, yes. and maybe even as women do that more. Yeah. And I think that's another shift that I would describe as stepping into our power is yeah. we need to realize that, you know, no, we need to look objectively at the situation, and we really need to be our own best advocate. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, our last question goes, uh, you, rel- you talked about this earlier. So if you could speak to a group of male CEOs of uh, Fortune 500 companies, what would you most like to say to them about this topic? And as well, if you were going to speak to a group of ambitious Gen Y women, what would you most like to say to them? So if I was speaking to a group of male CEOs, I would say... Um, that they really need to appreciate the differences of what both genders bring, bring to the table. And that research has shown that those, uh, those groups that are of uh, mixed gender, mm-hmm. mixed age, actually function best and are most highly performing, performing. So that they really need to look at how they can encourage that kind of, um, that kind of interaction by ensuring that they actually are promoting women into, into high positions. Um, that for them to really appreciate the fact that the reality is it doesn't matter how much we say it's a level playing field, it's actually not, and that women um, do carry a, a, a larger load, particularly if they're married with children, than what their male counterparts do, and that it really is in their best interest, the CEO's best interest, to acknowledge that and to the extent that it's possible to try to accommodate that and then to look at those kinds of things that provide support for women, whether it's day off or, or daycare or flex time or you know, different working hours or whatever, that to, to, uh, to, to be able to accommodate that means that you actually will have a, an employer employee that's very happy and is liable to stay longer and progress even in better. So I would say really to, uh, to look at that. And then the, the third thing that I would say to those, uh, to those men, men, male CEOs is uh, for them to think about mentoring a lot more than mm-hmm. what they do, but also to recognize that the mentoring goes both ways, that there is a lot that they can learn from their women uh, mm-hmm. staff as well in terms of different ways of approaching things. So with the uh, young women that are a group of ambitious Gen Y women, I would say that it's really important for young women to decide what it is that they want out of life, what they're passionate about um, at different stages in their life, and to go after it, and not to let anyone tell you that you can't go after what it is that you want to do, but to be very clear that just because you can do it, just because you can be a CEO or vice president or in a position of power, you need to decide whether or not you want to do it. I think so often we are pressuring young women to get into these positions, and so they really need to look at, is it something that you want to do? Because there are sacrifices that you make when you get into these positions. There's sacrifices that you make if you're a male 
leader Absolutely. or someone with power as well, but to recognize that you know you have choices and, and to look at if I do this, if I go down this path, if I decide I want to make my career everything and not have children, or if I decide to have children and still try to pursue it, there's consequences of any of those decisions mm-hmm. and just to think them through. Um, I just want to go back to what you said about pressuring. So um, I'd like to hear more about well, that. Do you think that there's pressure? I on? think there is. I think that um, our generation, I'm sort of, I guess, in the baby boob generation, where we really had to fight for a lot of these positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have encouraged our daughters probably quite a bit that they can do anything and be anything and they can, you know, they can... They should go after these because they've got a right to, and they haven't had to fight to the same extent that we have. I think in some ways we've probably provided some subtle pressure that they can be super mums, they can do it all. Um, You know, you could have a career and a family and be a top athlete and Mm -hmm. whatever. And that, um, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. And I think we leave our, our, you know, that generation, I think... 30 to 45-year-olds with the impression that if they can't do it all, that they're not they're failing. They're, that they're failing. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that there's a lot of pressure, I think we've, I think society, and I think even those of us that are parents have, have subtly been giving that message to, to that generation, that you should be able to have it all. And there's a price to pay for it. It's tough. Mm-hmm. And Sooner or later, I think you need to sit down and say, what are my values, what's important, and, and what do I want? And maybe I can't have it all, but decide which of those you know, various options or, or combination do you want? What will make you happy? And then the other thing I would say to them is make sure that you have um, a peer group, a support group, because it's really important when you're in these positions that you've got other people, particularly other women, but I don't think you need to limit it just to women, that you can turn to for support. Mm -hmm. And the fourth thing I would say is it's really important, particularly for women, who I think that often don't do it as easily as what men do, is to take care of yourself, you know, physically and mentally and spiritually and and, uh, from a career perspective, you know. I know a lot of my male colleagues, they're out at you know, for an hour at the gym during mm-hmm. the day. Right. I see if I can fit it in between, mm-hmm. right. you know, everything else when, in fact, it, it's really important that I take care of myself physically. But I think that women so often put everybody else first Absolutely. and themselves last. Absolutely. And that won't work, Nice. I don't think it works. No, I think, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I recently was at a convention. I heard Dr. John Gray speak, and one of, who wrote Men Are From Mars, one, yes. of, and one of the things he talked about are the rising rates of disease and yes. can't among women, yeah. which are directly related to these kind of stress yep. and pressure and doing too much and not taking care yep. of oneself. Absolutely. And the other person I heard speak who I was just blown away by, Brendan Burchard, and he one of his first books, he looked at sort of millionaires and how they sustain sort of a high level of performance on an ongoing basis and he has this system that he's developed and one of the things he talks about is the critical importance of looking after your physical health yes. making time for it and eating yeah. properly and drinking lots of water and yeah. and I think we all think oh well you know I think it's easy to think put that last and especially as you said women tend to put everyone yeah. else first but so that is the pot yeah. called kettle black Absolutely. because I don't do it and <laughs> if I look back on, on my life I wish I had started doing that 20 years mm-hmm. ago. Okay. Absolutely. Should have done it. 
Okay, well, thank you so much, Faye. As always, I have found I find these interviews so pleasurable and interesting and fascinating. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. I'm flattered that uh, you're interested. Oh, well, absolutely. And um, uh, and we look forward to possibly speaking with you again. Great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.